As usual, well, as sometimes usual, um, is Neil Bradley. Hi, everyone. And we also have Harrison Keeley on the line. Hi. But we also have an extra special guest, and his name is Scott Ogren. Hi, everybody. Yay, Scott is here. Woohoo! And the reason Scott is here, it's an unusual event, fairly unusual, is because Scotty has been doing some reading. For the first time ever. The first time ever. <laughs> this week he found out what a book was. And the first one he picked up was a book titled Kill Chain, America's Drone Warfare. That's, no, uh, that's some book title. to pick up first, huh? Kill Chain, sorry. Drones and the Rise of High-Tech Assassins. That is the name of the book. This is a book by journalist and writer Andrew Cockburn. Anybody who's familiar with Counterpunch, uh, Andrew Cockburn is a brother of Alexander Cockburn. I, well, actually, I'm pronouncing the name wrong. Coburn. Yeah. The other one sounds like a Silent CK. They're Irish, aren't they? They're really. they're Irish. Uh, they grew up in Ireland, but they're they're British by birth. Why? Uh, why is it? Why is it Silent CK? That's that's a British thing. It's a bit like why is it not Gloucestershire? It's Gloucestershire. No, I don't think that's the reason. Yeah. Anyway. Because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise it sounds like a yeast infection or something. Anyway. Uh, Joe. Uh, moving along. Um, yes, so Alexander Coburn uh, is the brother of Andrew Cockburn. Sorry, Coburn. And... Uh, there's the three brothers actually, and they're all writers. One of them writes. Um, I think uh, Jonathan Coburn is the is a journalist for the Independent. Alexander Coburn is the guy who he died a couple of years ago, and mm. he was with Counterpunch. Uh, I think of. the the author of the book we want to discuss here is a naturalized American. Now. He's been in the states right for decades. That's Andrew. So he's one of three. He's an editor at Harper's. <clears throat> right, one of three three brothers that uh, are pretty prestigious in the in the writing, in the world of uh, journalism, etc., and all of them pretty much on the same page. So it's not surprising then that, um, given what his two brothers have been into for many years, that this uh, Coburn Andrew uh, would write a book called Kill, Kill Chain, Drones and the Rise of High-Tech Assassins. So, after that somewhat discombobulated preamble, um, <laughs> Scotty, you have been reading this book. <coughs> have you finished the book? Yes, I, I finished the book. Uh, don't worry about the discombobulated intro, because probably everything I'm going to say from here on out will be discombobulated. Okay. Well, um, Kill Chain. What does Kill Chain refer to, that name? That's kind of the uh, it's a, a reference to, I think, the... Um, oh, yeah, it's kind of hard to... Hard to uh, 
it's not summarizing the, a sentence. It's, it's, it's not like, the author's term. He didn't invent it. It's it's a military term, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, it's, um, well, we, we kind of have to get into everything, you know, to sort of explain it, I think, because it's sort of... Um, I think it's a play on the chain of command, isn't it? So what is the chain of command in this situation? And the kill chain is specifically who gets who gives the order and how does one go about getting the order to take out a target? Something like that? Yeah. Okay. That's pretty much it. I, I when I read the book I was I was I'm kind of a, a technical kind of guy, you know, so I was sort of more um focused on the the utter absurdity of the whole process and how, right. how we, th we think we know how things work. And we think that when people are saying, oh, you know, the U.S. military is so high tech and precision weapons, and drones, precision strikes and all this stuff. And, of course, naturally, I think most people tend to sort of believe it. Uh, and so mm. this this book is is basically Coburn explaining uh, how it all works and, in fact, how it's all worked since way back he actually takes it back to World War II, but um, it kind of really started in earnest uh, with the Vietnam War. So. Which was a complete and utter, well, this is known history, that is a complete and utter cluster beep because, yeah. you know, the U.S. effectively pulled out with its tail between its legs. Famous images of the helicopter leaving uh the embassy in Saigon, yada, yada. It was a long, drawn-out affair. And Coburn goes into history. Not, is, is it drones per se? No, he's talking more about the no, technology that they were using yeah, in general. That, the drones kind of came later because back with... Uh, um, basically starting really with the Vietnam War, uh, there was a group, and I think they called them the Jasons. They were like former... Um, guys who worked on the atomic bomb and they were, more or less they were civilians and they uh, um, they had this idea that of course we want to make everything you know, we, we have this new thing called information technology which when you're talking about Vietnam you're talking about the late 60s and that kind of thing you know so um, the, the technology back then wasn't exactly uh, awe-inspiring let's say mm -hmm. um, nevertheless part of the reason or I guess I guess you could say a very large part of maybe the reason why um, Vietnam was such a cluster beep uh, was because of this gang of of people who uh, they basically decided to use really big computers like IBM computers and this kind of thing, and they uh, they had sensors. So basically they said, you know, warfare is usually done the traditional way, right? You have planes, you have tanks, you have bombs, you have, you know, troops on the ground, all this kind of thing, which of course you had in Vietnam. But they came up with this idea that they could use all this great technology and they could make warfare, they could take it to the next level. They could kick it up a notch. Perfect know? it. Yes, they could, they're going to they're gonna perfect warfare. Well, how are they going to do this? Well, they have these giant supercomputers from IBM, which by modern standards were crap. But back then, you know, it was pretty fancy. And then, of course, they wanted sensors. Well, back in the 60s and 70s, of course, sensors, you know, electronics were much simpler. But they came up with uh, a scheme whereby they would drop 
uh, hundreds of thousands of sensors in the jungles, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Vietnam, Laos, all that, that kind of stuff. And um, these were very basic sensors. There were, for example, seismic sensors. Um, and uh, there was another sensor that actually sort of smelled ammonia. And the whole idea was that it was going to detect uh, evil... Viet Cong? Viet Cong taking a pee? soldiers taking a piss, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> and I mean, he he goes into like all kinds of detail and, you know, it's, you kind of have to read the book because there's a lot I'm kind of trying to summarize here and it's a little bit difficult, but, um, first of all, they had a problem because they were using a system to drop, it was a radio based system to drop these sensors in the jungle and the system they were using to drop the sensors in the first place. The idea was let's blanket the whole jungle with hundreds of thousands of these sensors, which then transmit radio signals. Well, okay, back then there was no, there were no giant satellites with epic bandwidth and there were no fiber optic networks, I mean, widespread, you know. Uh, so they had to relay the radio signals. So then they'd have planes circling overhead, like over Vietnam, that acted as relays. Mm-hmm. So these little 1960s era sensors that were detecting, for example, the rumbling of a truck driving by or a soldier or, peeing. Or the tinkle of a peeing or, soldier. Yeah, or the tinkle of, of oh, you know, the Viet Cong or whatever. <clears throat> these signals would be relayed up to the airplanes flying above, circling a hit overhead like 24 hours a day. And then those planes would relay, retransmit the radio signals to wherever some fam- fabulous U.S. military base. And then that data would be collected, mm. again, using 1960s era technology, which is pretty funny. Uh, and it would all be collected in this supercomputer. And they had this system that would take all this data and it would process it. <clears throat> And it would give them, they would know everything. Total information awareness. Total information awareness, people. This <laughs> is the bomb. <laughs> so I can imagine some kind of 1960s era Donald Rumsfeld saying, I want to know when every Viet Cong takes a piss. And they said, <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Right up. Like, okay, Coming sir. Right they, up. they took him literally, you know. <laughs> okay. So... Yeah, so they so they did this, and I mean, the cost of this thing was like two billion dollars to set up. I mean, two billion in in twenty fifteen funds. So you can imagine, <clears throat> you know, and it cost like almost a billion dollars a year to keep the whole system running. <clears throat> but this was this was the beginning of this kind of idea of information warfare. That like, if we can get all the information we need, we can process it. Like in you know U.S. Central Command, you know, all this kind of stuff and make these executive decisions based on these computer calculations and such. And this was going to give them an edge in, in the war. Um, and despite all the money that they dumped into it and the, it it became a religion really, because it, it was like people believed in it. And if you didn't believe in it and you said, Hey, hang on a minute, this isn't working. This is actually backfiring on us. You basically lost your job, were demoted. They sent you off to Antarctica or something because this was the thing. And of course, I mean, if if the budget's two billion plus one billion a year, there were corporations making tons of money off of it. So mm-hmm. obviously, there are you know other interests. You know, they don't call it the military-industrial complex for nothing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, long story shorter, uh, it took the uh, Vietnamese all of one week to adapt to this. Because they... They figured it out. Yeah, they, I mean, you know, you've got planes flying over and they're dropping these these probably big, clunky, weird-looking sensors, you know, into the jungle onto the variety of paths and everything that, that they had everywhere. 
and it took them one week to figure out what was going on. So they would do things like stop and say, hey, the U.S. is using seismic sensors, so obviously they're, just, they're trying to detect when our convoys of trucks and equipment are driving by. Hmm, what do we do to fake them out? I know. Let's take one truck. We find the sensors, right? Oh, th these must be the seismic ones. Okay, let's take one truck and drive it forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards, or they just drive around in a circle or whatever, And because the sensors were very basic. It wasn't like, you know, we think of like a smartphone, you know, it's got like a, uh, you know, it receives GPS signals and has a position sensor, so it rotates the screen. No, 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 no. We're talking about like late 60s, early 70s, right? So this was just basically a sensor where when it jiggled, it would send a signal up to the plane, the plane would relay it on, and the supercomputer would go, holy cow, there's a truck driving by, right? And mm -hmm. this would be a data point. So the bad guys just drove one truck back and, forth. back and forth, back and forth, and then, of course, the supercomputer told the U.S. command, uh, you know, sir, we have a giant convoy here, and blah, 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 and, and they drop a whole bunch of bombs oh, where, where no one was. Meanwhile, the bad guys would be driving over, you know, 10, 20 kilometers to the right. And the same thing with the, uh, the so-called urine sensors. Uh, they would all pee in buckets and leave buckets of urine near, near the sensors or spread it all over the forest. And basically they used common sense to foil a, a $2 billion total information awareness system. And at least from what Coburn says, that was a large part of, of why the Vietnam War went on and on and on. Um, but of course, in that war, there were still <clears throat> there were still a lot of a lot of boots on the ground, and a lot of mm -hmm. people died, and you know, on both sides, and Agent Orange, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it was. Uh, they they also had another system where they were uh, using sensors that would detect artillery fire. And there was a, a guy named Boyd who went in. He, he actually went in and, and tried to tell them that the system wouldn't work because mm. they have this network of sensors. And when you, you know, it's going to detect enemy artillery fire triangulated, whatever, you know. I mean, this was fancy stuff back then. And he had to go in and explain to them that, no, this isn't going to work because the sensors weren't accurate enough. And the computing power, you know, I guess wasn't good enough that uh, the entire system could be fooled by friendly artillery fire. So both sides start shooting their guns and the information they were getting was literally completely and utterly useless. So basically this group of so-called Jasons, this, these eggheads, these super geniuses who were like, they were like it, man, were, I guess they were kind of obsessed with their own genius or something because even they, either that or they were part of, they were part of the whole, you know, commercial venture and they were profiting from it. So it was basically just a bunch of BS and they pushed it. And then the higher ups in the military pushed it. And that was kind of the start, uh, in my opinion, anyway, that was kind of the first event where it really became, uh, this, mm. this sort of information warfare, this new type of using technology to, yeah. to sensors or yeah, kind yeah. of, uh, unmanned, Essentially, it's information, not human, not human, uh, human intelligence, but artificial, effectively intelligence. Well, this directing a war to some degree. I think there's another layer to it because I know from 
um, reading about McNamara, among other people, he was defense secretary at the time. And he's, um, his previous job had been CEO of General Motors, I think. And he was a uh, Harvard-trained economist. And this was a big thing at the time, getting in mathematicians and economists into the Pentagon. And so the tech, the IT infrastructure was one thing. And then the other thing was applying statistical models to how you would conduct warfare. Mm. So the terrain is split up into quadrants and, oh, we just need to move these people here, move them there. And it was, it was this part of the same mentality where we have all the information we need, or if we do, let's go get it. Mm. We can just feed it into a computer model and then it'll churn out what we need to do to produce exactly the reality on the ground we want. Okay, looks good to me. Let's let's do it. And then they follow through in, with a series of operations. <laughs> the result will be completely different. Um, okay, something went wrong with the model. Let's go back and just rework it a bit. Okay, try it again. Completely different. Mm. You know, yeah. and it was one... You know, catastrophe after another, and it, I guess at the root of it is the kind of hubris of thinking you can, you know, fight. Uh, well, it wasn't a normal war to begin with. I mean, mm. it's in this situation where you've got major um, technological advantage over the opponent. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that this. I mean, everything I'm talking about is sort of like the it's 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 the technical side, it's the information, mm-hmm. this new you know information warfare kind of thing. But that that all didn't happen in a vacuum. I mean, there was there were obviously political machinations going on behind the scenes, and and there was you know, I mean, it's like today with you know we're going to spread freedom and democracy. Mm. Well, that's 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 part of it. It's the you know all the BS and everything. Right. And then there's this today. There's a there's a Oh God! The inf- information warfare has been taken to uh, an absurd level. Ridiculous extremes, yeah, yeah. What uh, did you learn about the drone warfare today? Because well, it seemed to really blow your mind. Y- yeah, what you thought you knew about it versus what you learned about it. Yeah, that 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 came. Uh, he kind of walks through the book, and he starts with Vietnam, and then he goes through. There's this period of of the the development of of drones. The first ones they made, the, you know, blah blah blah, um, and then he gets to the good stuff, which is basically the uh, the Gulf War and, and especially the aftermath of September 11th, 2001. And uh, along the way, of course, technology advanced, and so it became feasible to construct these remote-controlled drones, right? And uh, then they said, well, hey, we could have a drone, and we put a Hellfire missile on it. Um, so then we could have a drone with no pilot, and then we could fly it, and we could use our super intelligence system, kind of like the computer from Team America, you know, you know, when they're like, we have lost intelligence. Well, mm-hmm. that, that's literally, that movie is actually based on reality. Yeah. After yeah. I read this book, I realized that that movie is actually precisely describing the sheer idiocy that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, with, with after September 11th, they had this technology. And part of the reason it became popular then was because uh, we just had the whole, at that time, the, the dot-com bust, bubble. Yeah. bubble had just burst. And so you had this 
this this infrastructure in place, um, namely uh, a whole bunch of satellites with huge quantities of bandwidth. You had fiber optic cables running everywhere. And of course, you had all this bandwidth that was no longer being used because the dot-com bubble had burst and everyone had finally realized that no, making a website should not make you an overnight billionaire because that's just stupid. Uh, yeah. So the U.S. military said, yeah, you know, we got these drones and they got missiles on them and we need remote control. But for that, we need bandwidth because we need to we need to encrypt the data and then we need to send it over these, this network of satellites and fiber optic cables. And interestingly enough, later in the book, Coburn talks about how one of the reason why, reasons why the U.S. needs military bases everywhere is specifically for drones. For example, they have a base in Germany, and that that base was is one of the places where these signals are relayed through and control center and blah blah blah. Um, so, if the U.S. didn't have six seven hundred military bases all over the world, uh, essentially their their information warfare uh, network or infrastructure it, it wouldn't work. Which I thought was kind of interesting because, well, you know, that's a kind of another mm -hmm. little bit of information as to how it all works, you know. Right. <clears throat> but with the anyway, after September 11th, yeah, they they used all this and they said, uh, "All right, let's let's use this system." And again, it became it was just like in Vietnam when they're they're promoting it, and this became the new thing, and it's continued on. Actually, it's accelerated even through, you know, the Obama administrations and everything and up to the current day, like it's still going and it's actually like worse than ever. Um, the, the kind of some of the details of, of how it works are that alone is kind of shocking because basically they use, it's, it's kind of complicated because you have like a drone pilot who's like, say in Arizona. So he's sitting like in his full flight suit with his, you know, his, his sassy, you know, aviator sunglasses on holding the control stick, you know, with his shiny little ring on there. Like I'm an air force pilot. This is they awesome. They even wear uh, seatbelts. Hang on. Seat yeah. 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 No, it's like, it's, but it's totally, it's like a video game. It's like they're, and they, I mean, it's like they, they prep and they're in their flight suit and they're all decked out. And it's like, I mean, it's deadly serious, but it's basically a video game. <clears throat> Why would they wear a flight suit? Oh, cause this is, this is. This he's is serious, man. He's sitting in a box, so he's not taking off anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and Does he have his, his Maverick sunglasses on and everything, probably? Uh, yeah. I saw one photo, yeah, he was wearing the Maverick sunglasses. I don't know how he sees in, the screen. Inside, it's a, like, inside a blacked-out box yeah. in the middle of the desert. Yeah, and uh, so that you've, you have the pilots who are, like, say, in Arizona, and then you have the commander who's in, you know, say, like, the Pentagon or something, and then there's, like, a legal team who's in, you know, I don't know, like Virginia or something. And then you have another commander who's in, like, where the drone is actually flying, say, like, over Afghanistan or something. And then, so all this data is being relayed all over the, the Earth, literally. Um, but, of course, the pilot can't actually fire or do anything without getting approval from the commanders and all the other higher-ups who are spread out all over the world. Mm. And then what the actual drone is seeing is broadcast to all these different people in all the different parts of the world, uh, including sometimes like say the secretary of defense or the president or whatever. And they're all watching. And, um, there are a few, a few little issues. For example, uh, we all think that drones are super awesome, right? I mean, the predator, they can fire a missile it must be 
Must be hot stuff, right? Apparently not. Uh, the resolution of the different types of cameras, I think there's like an optical and an infrared or something. Um, the resolution of these cameras is has been described as like six inch resolution, which means I, I guess you could think of that as like if you have a pixel on a screen, one pixel is six inches across. So obviously uh, it's been described as, as viewing a drone, seeing what a drone sees, if you're the pilot or you're the, the higher ups or whatever, has been described as uh, looking down at the earth from 15,000 feet in the air through a soda straw. Uh, in addition, the data is all encrypted and sent over the networks, including relayed by satellite, which if you have satellite internet, you know that that introduces latencies. So sometimes what the people are seeing on their screen, including the pilots, can be delayed up to 20 seconds after reality. Now, how you fly a plane with a 20-second delay, uh, I mean, you know, how you launch a missile if there's a 20-second delay, like, I don't know. But that's what apparently what actually happens. Um, yeah. So this is the... So basically, with yeah. a six-inch resolution... That means that if you're looking at a person's face, their face will essentially be one or two pixels. So you won't even be able to see who you're looking at if you're looking for a particular individual. And then you would factor in the delay and where they are, where you're like when you're seeing them. If you fire, choose to fire a missile at that target, then in 20 seconds they could be somewhere completely different, and someone else could be, could be in the location where you're firing that missile. Is that is that kind of yeah? That's that's a pretty much way of looking at it. <clears throat> that's pretty much it. And um, it's worse than that, Harrison, because Scotty, you were saying that uh, they—I mean—they wouldn't be able to make out a, a face. Mm -mm. They're not even sure they're yeah. looking at a person. No, they—they <laughs> actually—they can't—they can't tell the difference between. I mean, you think you think you hear, you know, U.S. military drone. You know, it's like I mean, we've, we're, we're so bombarded with like you know the NSA and they're they're like they're all knowing. You know, they know everything. They know what you ate for dinner and they know, you know, so when you hear about these drones, you, you instantly assume that we're talking about like highly advanced technology. And in fact, what we're actually talking about is, um, there have been times when like two thirds of the drones that were sent up crashed or had to, you know, there were emergency landings because they fall apart. Uh, one of the types of drones had like a plastic body that would literally throw itself apart during flight. Um, the cameras are not accurate at all. The, if if you have a and, and this is part of the problem with like collateral damage and such, because if if you have such a such a poor resolution, you it's not there were there are actually incidents described in the book where a drone, a U.S. military controlled drone fired on uh, uh, like a, a van or a little bus filled with people who were like going to a party or something, and they had stopped the vehicle and gotten out and knelt down to pray. And and he walks you through the whole the whole process where the higher ups were saying, you know, oh that's that's a that's Al Qaeda. They're they're terrorists and they're blah blah blah. It turns out it was mostly women and children. They couldn't even tell the difference between a man and a child. That's how poor the resolution is. But when you hear about this on the news, what you're hearing is that like, you know, we have confirmed that Al Zarqawi is in blah 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 and we mm. you know and we got him. But we, we got him. Sometimes they say, we got him, we think. And you're like, well, did you or didn't you? Yeah, <laughs> well, he, he, he goes well, that over just, that too. That just happened yesterday. That happens like... That yeah. happened, yeah. that happened with when? the leader of the Taliban, Mansoor. He was mm. allegedly shot with a drone yesterday. 
And uh, well, the Taliban is saying that he's still alive, um, which they'd probably say either way. But uh, but yeah, the U.S. military. No, he's said he's, that, uh, he's alive. Uh, after, after reading this book, he's probably still alive. <laughs> I, I would bet a large sum of money on it because he he also Coburn also goes through a lot of the other technologies, not just related to drones, and he, to kind of flesh out the the uh, the picture. And it's like um, it's it's not just like visual data from drones. They also they monitor, for example, like in Iraq. Uh, the U.S. went in, they destroyed everything, and then they, they set up a whole cell phone system, right? Well, the reason they did that was not because, I mean, obviously, corporations are making money off of this, so that's one big reason. But the other big reason is that then they set up uh, kind of like their own, it's kind of like their own infrastructure, and there's also um, like this system, I forget the name of it, that allows, it, it fakes your phone out into thinking that it's connecting to an actual cell tower when it's actually connecting to this piece of like, you know, Intel military equipment. And so it's tracking your, your MC number. It's like the unique ID of your phone. So part of their information, their total information awareness is basically everybody in Iraq had a cell phone. And so they know, like if, if, if they say, well, this guy here, he's a terrorist and he starts calling the pizza guy, suddenly the pizza guy pops up on their, on, you know, their intelligence system, you know, the dopey sounding computer, like from the movie and it says pizza man is a terrorist. And then there's actually a group of like six, 60 or 66,000 people. Now it's ballooned from like just a tiny number to like over 60,000 people whose job it is. They, they're all in the U S and their job is to their, their targeters. Their job is to take all this information that these, the, the inaccurate information from their, their monstrously huge computer systems and filter it down and decide basically who should be blown to pieces with a drone missile and who should live. And it's all based on this kind of information. But for example, with uh, the point I was getting at with the cell phone thing is that it's just like in Vietnam where they peed in a bucket, mm -hmm. you know, all you have to do, the, the assumption is that everyone will use their cell phone. Well, okay. What if I turn my cell phone off and then I get a piece of paper and I write a note to my terrorist buddy and I fold it up and I give it to my neighbor who then runs across town and hands it off to the other guy. They have no idea that that happened. They, they have, and, and in fact they have a, they have a, this kind of, I don't know if you call it a kind of a system where like they create like a network and their goal is not to defeat terrorism their goal isn't to, they have, they have the network with all these nodes and each node is a person and their goal is to, uh, I forget the terminology they use, but it was basically, we need to disassemble the network. So when a node disappears, they all cheer and dance and go, Ooh, yay, we're, we're beating the bad guys. But if, if that person turns off his cell phone and writes a note and sends it by courier to his buddy, then the node disappears from their network. And they think that he's dead. They think that he's he's beaten. He's, you know, he's buggered off and decided to go just stop being a terrorist and make pizza baking his life or something. Well, as far know? as they're concerned, he's no <laughs> longer in the reality. Yeah, it's they literally they literally use all this information, which is completely it's it's totally and utterly incomplete. It doesn't give any kind of complete picture of actual reality, and they mm -hmm. base everything they do around this and it's literally like a religion because you're either 
you know, you're either promoting it and talking about how great it is and doing it or you're fired. And mm. that's, that's pretty much. Yeah. Um, you told us about this, um, war game exercise they did shortly after nine 11 at the Pentagon, which I thought was <laughs> scary and funny all at once. Um, why don't you run through that? Because it had some ramifications, at least yeah. within the Pentagon. Well, and one one last thing I just wanted to say. I have I had a little note here that I missed. Um, the in terms of the quality of like what a drone is seeing versus there was a kind of a battle that went on. And one of the things that happened was uh, there were a bunch of people who said, "Look, if I'm in say like an A10 tank killer airplane and I'm I'm flying above the battlefield and I look down even with my no binoculars, just look with my human eyes. I can get more information about what's going on in the battlefield than you people with your crazy spy satellites and drones could do. So the Grumman Corporation, I think this was back before, maybe it was before it became Northrop Grumman, I'm not sure, but they actually built this whole kind of simulation and they to, to, do, to do a test. And um, they, they kind of built a model like below some kind of platform or something and they had, you know, commanders there to sort of certify that it was all super realistic and everything. And in one case they had like a shutter that would open and it would give you basically the equivalent view for just like a few seconds. Like if you're flying by really fast in an airplane, you'd have a view of a certain section of the battlefield and then the shutter would close. And then they did another test with a high resolution video camera, not pixelated and crappy, but a high resolution video camera to simulate, okay, instead of a, like, a dude in a plane flying over the battlefield, this is a drone with a bird's eye view. And they compared to see, okay, well... What sees more? Yeah, which, which one sees more? And what they found was that the, uh, the TV viewers were able to find as many targets as those spotted with the naked eye. But, at, at a high resolution, mind you. But the TV viewers also identified five times as many false targets... In other words, they saw tanks and things that weren't actually there, or they saw, you know, they what, what they saw a car as a tank. So let's blow it up, or, um, and this created kind of a big, it was a big shtick because you know all the the soldiers on the ground basically were saying like, look, you you people are crazy, um, and the higher ups were saying no, no, we're awesome. So then Grumman, a defense contractor, did this thing to show. No, 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 we need, probably because they wanted to build more airplanes, because airplanes are far more expensive than drones. Um, but yeah, it didn't work. Anyway, so the war game you spoke of, uh, that was known as <clears throat> Millennium Challenge 2002. Now, this is totally awesome. You guys are going to love this. So basically, it was 2002, summer of 2002, and there was a giant war game that the U.S. conducted. Now, this was a virtual war game. It was like a giant video game. It cost over $250 million. It involved 13,500 people waging a mock war virtually, like a giant computer simulation, a video game, involving nine training sites across the United States, as well as 17 virtual locations. And it all existed in, in these these huge computers of the Joint Forces Command, and, I mean, it was all crazy. And to top it all off, everyone's favorite Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, he was there for it. Millennium Challenge 2002. 
Yay. I mean... So... <laughs> no, sorry, what was that for? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's better. So they had a, a blue team and a red team, and the, the blue team was basically, that's the U.S. military. And the red team in this giant virtual video game war was led by a guy named Paul Van Riper, who was a, a retired three-star Marine general. And he was, he was, if you read the book, you learn that he was very much against all this idiotic uh, supercomputers and information is key and all that. He was totally against it, but he had retired. But of course, they needed someone to beat in this giant war game. So they said, hmm, let's get Van Riper in here because, you know, we can kick his butt and show him who's boss and, like, finally he'll see that we were right. Finally he'll be enlightened like us. Yes. So they did. And in the the, the, the simulation began, and in the first hours of the war, the blue team, that's the USA. Oh, the blue, blue is the USA led by a General Kernan, and red was led by this Van Riper character, and the red team was supposed to be some sort of group of evil Arab dirty terrorists in the Persian Gulf. Mm -hmm. So that was the simulation. And of course, blue team, the U.S. is supposed to win. So so in the first hours of the war, the blue team, uh, they knocked out Van Riper's fiber optic communications because, of course, war is all about information now. So the first thing you do is knock out the fiber optic communications. And they expected that this would just be like a total... It would cripple them. Oh, yeah, he'd be, he'd be like totally useless, right? Mm -hmm. But instead, what he did is he decided to use motorcycle couriers and coded messages in the calls to prayer from the mosques in order to prepare his counterattack, which, of course, they didn't expect. Then uh, there was a carrier strike group or task force, whatever, loaded with all kinds of troops that had steamed into the Gulf in this virtual war game. And Van Riper of the Red Team goes, hang on a minute, you know, George Bush had just announced that there's this preemptive strike thing, you know, like the U.S. reserves the right to blow up anyone if we think, you know, in our own defense, we can preemptively kill anybody we want, right? So Van Riper goes, well, hang on a minute, the blue team is going to preemptively attack me, but they're not expecting me to attack first, so, well, let's see, and he did a, you know, quick little calculation and everything, and he said, all right, red team, launch everything we've got at the carrier task force, go. And they launched, red team launched all their missiles against blue team, and the end result was that uh, the, um, where did it go here? Blah, 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 ah, yes. So the blue team's defenses were overwhelmed. 16 virtual American ships sank to the bottom of the Gulf. 20,000 virtual soldiers died. And it was only a few days into the simulation, the war was over, and the U.S. blue team had lost horribly. Hmm. So now you, you might think... That, that was it, and they'd learned something. That they'd actually go, oh, damn, this is, this is kind of bad, you know? No, no, no. What happened was the, the blue team led by General Kernan, um, he probably, like, broke down in tears or something... Then, like, they had his mommy come, give him milk and cookies. Mm. Then he sat on Donald Rumsfeld's knee. Donald Rumsfeld gave, gave him some G.I. Joe toys to play with, <laughs> you know, to try to cheer him up. Mm. And after he'd calmed down and he'd stopped his, his temper tantrum, he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Do over. We just got our butts kicked. Uh, but what they did is they said, okay, start over, but 
Red Team, you're not allowed to shoot down any of our V-22 troop transports. And, oh, by the way, all the missiles you launch, they all miss their target. None of them hit. And they, they institute, oh, and, and they also required that Red Team have, like, all their equipment with radars. All the radars would have to be turned on all the time, which mm. is, you know, when the radar of, say, like an airplane is active, mm. other, uh, the enemy can see mm. you, basically, you mm -hmm. know. So they basically crippled the Red Team, restarted the game, and, of course, Blue Team won. Mm. So Van Riper writes a report and says, this is ridiculous. He named names and said, this is what they did. You know, I kicked their ass. They redid it and basically crippled me, and, and um, Coburn claims that the report was classified and no one ever saw it again. So even when they do a simulation mm. of their tactics and they know that they're, like, totally retarded and that it doesn't work, they just... They have a problem with reality. Yeah, they, like, they, they literally go back and, like, revise history and as if, as if they can go in and, you know, in a real war they could say... Hang on, you're not allowed to do that. Can you can you turn on your radars all the time? And oh, by the way, um, <laughs> miss with all your missiles. Mm. And can you like blow up your own tanks and stuff to make it easier for us? Because we've got like total information awareness, and it's not going to work if you're like a real enemy. Mm. <laughs> so you'd be like a fake enemy that doesn't really exist, <laughs> and then we'll fight you. Which is sort of what they did, but yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, I mean, the upshot of this is basically even when confronted with the failings of this approach, they just said whatever, and they've continued and gone whole hog with it to the point today where, as, as Coburn's saying, drone warfare is the primary means of military engagement that the United States uses. I mean, Af Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, elsewhere, it's drones first and foremost. Mm. Yeah, and it um, the the whole reason I read this book was because my good buddy Don, um, he he came over and we were talking about uh, the, there was an article we had on saw recently about, of course the you know mainstream Western news sources are always talking about uh, Russian military hardware, and of course they always poo poo it like they say you know oh the Su twenty seven is a yeah, that's you know, it's that Soviet era plane, and it's it's such a piece of garbage. You know, our stuff could beat it. You know, no problem. So my buddy Don and I were talking about this, and I said, you know, it's really driving me crazy because I mean, I look at what's publicly available, and I go, okay, yeah, maybe some of these planes are Soviet era, quote unquote. But like when you read about it, it's publicly available information. They've replaced the engines in them. They've completely replaced all the avionics, all the onboard electronics. The targeting systems are like brand new. It's it's you know it's like they use the same airplane, the actual airframe, because they can because they did such a damn good job designing it that they don't need to design a new one. And maybe they don't have the money to design a new one, but they upgrade what they've got, and it's still even according to U.S. analysts and even U.S. like generals and higher-ups, uh, many, if not most, of the Russian fighters are actually superior to the American ones. And, like, you have the American F-35, which breaks the pilot's neck when they eject. Uh, the avionics fail. They built this boat recently where on its maiden voyage the, the, the engine broke down and it had to be towed back to the harbor. And then on its second trip out, something else broke and it had to be towed back. And it's like, um, it's clear that they, they're they so obsessed with their, their drone warfare and this, like, information awareness and all this stuff that they, they've neglected, like, 
the the regular military. You know, they don't they don't have any. They assume that um, the the opponent will always be weak. And in a way, you can kind of understand this because, for example, they don't just go in and start drone strikes. They initiate you know economic blockades. They have color revolutions in countries. You know, basically, there's a whole network of different operations. And the military side of it is, well, okay, let's see, we've destabilized the country. Um, they just had a coup and they installed our, our favored, you know, ruler. Economically, we now own the country. We're gutting it and installing, you know, our corporations. Uh, now we just need, there's some resistance. Now we just need our drone strikes. And if we kill a whole bunch of civilians, well, who gives a shit, right? And that's what they do. So when they're confronted with somebody like Russia or maybe China, uh, when, where they can't do all that, they literally don't know what to do except, you know, propaganda and bad mouthing. And, you know, that's pretty much it. Right. Yeah. It's, um, it's been really, it's really revealing the whole situation around what has happened since Russia has kind of like stood Russia and, and to a certain extent China and increasingly China have stood up against them um, or stood up to the Americans, you know, because it's that, that's the only time when you really see, uh, what the kind of bully is is made of, and and you get to kind of even see that the person is a bully, type thing. Because if they're, you know, if they're the only kid on the block type of thing, then everybody tends to believe their propaganda and what they say. And um, but if somebody if there's no one to stand up and say, "Hang on a minute, uh, that's not really true what you're saying," and nobody gets a chance to see how they'll react to that. You know, well, okay, for the first time, another country has said to America, "You're full of it." And uh, that's not, you know, and, and what are you going to do about it? You know, what are you going to do uh, uh, if, if we, about the fact that we said this to you and then you see what they kind of like, what they're made of? Because before that, it's all just bluff and bluff. So they can say whatever they want. They can grandstand. They can say, uh, they can they can promote themselves in whatever way they want. And everybody just goes, yes, okay, I agree. No problem. So yeah. it's been uh, really useful for everybody or anybody who's watching to um, to, be, to see uh, the empire like that challenge, you know, mm-hmm. not just to see them challenge, but as I said, to see how they respond. <clears throat> and as we've, as we've seen, uh, and their responses, it's just, uh, well, it's just nonsensical. You know, they just get all discombobulated. I mean, people, anybody who's watched those um, State Department uh, spokespeople like Jen Psaki and Marie Harf and then this latest guy, um, what's his name? John Kirby. John Kirby, yeah. Uh, Stuff that just simple questions. John Curveball. Curveball. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the question, the simple questions that that the journalists ask them, and the kind of bullshit answers they come up with, it's just um, it's amazing. I mean, that that in itself exposes the fact that they are really full of it, and that the whole thesis about uh, of of what the U.S. is about and what it's doing around the world and why is all just nonsense because they don't have a convincing argument when anybody says, "Hang on a minute, that sounds like bullshit." Ah, uh, well. Mm, uh, I'm not going to get into that right now. <laughs> so it's like, okay. Yeah, and the the whole you know Russian intervention in Syria, of course, at the request of the Syrian government, so it's actually legal because that's how it works. Um, that that kind of took on a, a little bit of you know I, I look at it on, in a, a slightly different light now because mm. you know the U.S. military power is basically drones, information, more drones, targeted killings that that don't. Uh, they have the exact opposite effect, in fact. Um, and, and Coburn in the book relates this to the 
this is a little bit of an aside, but um, he relates the this idea of the targeted killings to the drug war. And in mm-hmm. fact, back in the Reagan era, the, um, the, the the policy with the war on drugs was they go in and they assassinate the the high the highest leaders in of the drug cartels. And what they found was that this was supposed to destroy the drug trade. What it actually did was the the people at the top of the the drug lord food chain basically they were taken out, and then the the underlings um, splintering of the groups occurred, like the different cartels and stuff. And then the underlings who are usually more psychopathic and crazy they would take over and then because like the different cartels split into smaller ones there was more competition which means there was more production which means the price of all the drugs went down which is exactly what they didn't want and the the cartels themselves became more numerous and more violent and even more entrenched and the whole thing backfired and that's exactly what they're doing with the war on terror and today you have this whole thing with you know the refugees and blah 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 and it's not really hard to see that you had sort of U.S. trained terrorists. They they used to be our friends. We trained them. Oh, well, now they're now they're the evil enemy. Uh, but then you you go in, you know, ostensibly you're going in to kill them. But what you end up doing is murdering a bunch of innocent civilians. And then you have this big. Well, yeah. By their own figures, ninety percent of people killed are not the intended targets. That's after we take into account the fact that the way they come up with who is a target and who isn't mm-hmm. is so insane, you wouldn't believe it. Now, they think they have a complex system in place. They call it the disposition matrix, which is basically a crazy Orwellian term for a kill list and how they come up with who's going to be on the, till, the kill list. Well, their computers, the same computers that are used to execute the operations come up with the names. Computer, give me Computer, a name. Computer, give me a name. It, it's that bad. I mean, it, at least at the very beginning of the war on terror, when they went to Afghanistan, there was direct communication with tribal people, fighters on the ground, like the Northern Command. You remember that? The U.S. Mm-hmm. went in and it was, it was allied with some of the warlords and not the Taliban. Mm. So you had direct human intel. But you see, things progressively get worse when you withdraw that intel and you begin to rely almost exclusively on your supercomputers, mm. your spy satellites, and your drones. Yeah. The supercomputer has a random jihadi name generator. It may as well. And uh, it just spits one out there and they say, we got a match. A uh, couple of questions slash comments here, Scotty. Um, Rabelais says, Scotty, don't forget the Coburn assessments of the A-10 that the drone heads want to retire. Ah, uh, yeah. What's, What's that? that about? They, um, I don't remember exactly, but the, but the, uh, um, they wanted, they wanted to get rid of the A-10. This, that was, I think that was kind of the whole battle between the whole, no, we need like a real pilot in a real airplane flying over the battlefield versus the, the whole idea of like the drones and, and there was kind of a battle that went on. Um, and, uh, I don't remember exactly what happened. It was, um. I think they were they like they retired it or something. They tan and the, yeah, so but then they. The, I mean, they're they're still around, so they right. didn't. But it was something with like the, the Air Force. You know, every mm. every different group like you had the Air Force and the Army, and they all wanted this. They all wanted like, and the CIA has their own drones, mm. and so it's like this whole whole widespread thing. But right, um, so it's I maybe think, I think that was just kind of the battle between like the sane mm. 
military people who go, no, this is not the way you win a war. And the corporate types. To the corporate type versus the corporate types who were... Who wanted uh, a, a better profit margin, basically, where it's probably easier for them to build a bunch of crappy drones and yeah. sell them at ridiculously high price uh, compared to actually building a real honest-to-God airplane, like an A-10 or something. Uh, the other question was, did the author, uh, Coburn, mention anything about why they use that horrible double-tap strategy with their drones? Uh, he, yeah, he did mention the double-tap. That's a, that, that just seemed to be part of the... Um, it just seemed to be part of their their completely idiotic and psychopathic scheme was that they, I mean, they, they don't care who they're killing. They, they don't, I, I don't know to what extent, I mean, they're all kind they all kind of like drank the Kool-Aid, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, he gives kind of a transcript of like one of these, these drone missile attacks and everything. And it's like the pilot of the thing is like, you know, what, what do you, what do you mean? It's a kid. We don't have information that it's a kid. I want to kill something. Do I have, do I have authorization to fire? You know, I mean, they're all just like so gung ho that it's, um, and yeah, so one of the policies is basically fire, fire the one missile. It blows up. Mm. Then people come in to help. Mm. And when they come in to help you, a second drone fires another missile or, or they drop another bomb from a plane flying overhead. And that's, that's just, um, where it came from. Well, it came from the twisted psychopathic minds of, people who are running the show and but it's apparently it is actually like policy that's just what they do and mm. civilian casualties be damned and you know if you I imagine up. they rationalize that well if you do the initial strike you're going to attract some of the assistance and other terrorists in quotes right. closer to the scene okay now fire full-on hellfire missile yeah, which is, and obliterate which is the state. dumbest thing ever because like if you're a terrorist and your buddy terrorist just got blown to pieces are you going to run over to where the explosion was and go, no. I want to be blown up too. No, you're going to run like hell in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. You'll figure it out. Yeah. I mean, That's you know, it's not, yeah. Um, yeah. The, but just getting back real quick to the, to America's conventional warfare capabilities. I was just looking at uh, Saad earlier today and there's a couple of recent articles up Um that kind of answer the question, well, how good is the U.S. military in traditional combat? Like, if we get rid of this, you know, given the Millennium uh, the, uh, the Millennium Challenge, Challenge 2002 war game results, like, and given this, everyone's talking about, oh, it's going to be World War Three between Russia and the U.S., and oh, you know, okay, so how, how good is the conventional U.S. military? Um, recently, there was a the, the U.S. military co-hosted something called the Strong Europe Tank Challenge, uh, which was the first of, this, of its kind since the end of the Cold War. And obviously the U.S. expected to showcase its awesome superiority in the area of blowing things up with tanks, right? Um, and at this event there were tank platoons from Denmark, Slovenia, Germany, Italy, Poland, and the United States. And in fact, the United States had two platoons of tanks, whereas no one else did. Mm. Um, But the U.S. tank crews didn't win, and the article says, in fact, despite being the only nation to provide two tank platoons instead of one, the U.S. didn't even place in the rankings. Mm. Germany wound up coming in first place, followed by Denmark in second place, and Poland in third place. I mean... Poland? Poland? Where? (laughs) What? Poland is like, what? 
So, uh, and then there's another recent competition uh, where tanks again, except mm-hmm. this time it was the the North Carolina National Guard. And uh, so, you know, the National Guard is like we we come to fight when like the country is invaded or if there's a big war and we're needed, but they're not like full time military mm. folks, right? Okay, so there was a North Carolina National Guard tank platoon with a crew that included an insurance adjuster, a truck driver, a college student, and an aspiring police officer. And this gang, in their tank platoon, managed to beat everyone, including active-duty tank platoons from the U.S. Army, the Marine Corps, and the Canadian Army. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of a... Um, <clears throat> and then there there is a little... There's a sign or two. That maybe I, I don't want to say there's hope because it's it's just so messed up that like it's bizarre. But there was another article we had about um, there's a Lieutenant General H R McMaster, which I, I don't know where these generals get their names. They're always like <laughs> you know Lieutenant General H R McMaster. You know, like you, you never. I'm have, a born winner. You know, you never have like four star General Sam Jones. It's always hmm. like McMaster General Slaughter. I think they I think they're like gnome de, Breed gnome de guerre or something. <laughs> yeah. Breed love. Like you, you don't get promoted unless you have a manly name, you know. Right. <clears throat> anyway, the he was speaking he's a commander of the US Army's training and doctrine command. He's in this he's in some involved in some program now about uh, called the Russia New Generation Warfare Study, blah blah blah, analyzing Russians' capabilities and um he recently said at a uh in, in D C he said that um basically the the recent uh skirmishes with Russia have revealed that the Russians have superior artillery firepower, better combat vehicles, and they've learned sophisticated use of UAVs for tactical effect. And should the US forces find themselves in a land war with Russia, he said they would be in for a rude and cold awakening. But the interesting thing that he mentions is Look at our our enemy's countermeasures, noting Russia's use of like uh, basically like EMF, their jammers and this kind of thing. And he specifically says uh, that they have the ability to disrupt our network strike capability. Now, this that term network strike capability that kind of directly refers to this whole fiber optics and satellites and epic supercomputers and drones and like because that's how they do everything. So basically, he's saying point blank that. Um, well, the Russians could totally disable our network strike capability, in quotes, which means basically they're left with the guys in tanks who can't beat a college student in the National Guard or any other country mm-hmm. on the list. So, it's because I've never had any experience yeah. of it, you know, um, and they don't, <laughs> they don't take it seriously. They've relied far too much on, on you know, the power of their, their high tech and stuff. And uh, But yeah, I mean... I, I just had an image of, um, you know, uh, U.S. jets or something, or tanks or something flying, coming in, you know, and um, playing Highway to the Danger Zone in in the background, you know, that tune from uh, Top, Top Gun, Gun, you know, with their aviators on, you know, thinking they're Maverick and stuff, <laughs> and then flash, you cut down to a bunch of Russians, you know, in the, in their in their kind of like compound or something with their radars and stuff, you know, their, their, their 
kind of electronic warfare kind of operating station, and they're playing Bob Marley's "We're Jamming." <laughs> jamming in the name of the Lord. <laughs> We're jamming. Uh, that would be a good scene from a movie. I'm gonna write. It. I'm gonna make a movie and include that in it. Anyway, uh, I, I think I've got a feeling the Russians do that kind of thing because they're very funny about the way they go through some of their stunts. You uh, know, like flying low over ships and chasing the Americans out of this place and that place. Yeah. Um, the thing that you mentioned earlier on, Neil, about um, this is something that never, because everybody's like Scotty says, drunk the drunk the Kool Aid, and that's when you said um, all the military personnel have drunk the Kool Aid and believe the believe the hype and believe the propaganda that's been going on so long. Uh, that extends to the population. I think a lot of people as well. They everybody's bought it, the war on terror, and you know, but. <clears throat> and it's really effective, and I think that's our first line. I mean, without that, they're lost because uh, the truth uh, of the matter is, and this, is, this will be hard for people to do, is, is just remove all that. Uh, okay, wipe the slip clean and go back to the, the beginning and look at it based on, not go back to the beginning, but look look at the war and terror, how it has evolved, and look at all the details that we kind of talk about and write about. Uh, that are all hard facts, and even the stuff that they admit themselves, as you were describing there, Scotty. <coughs> um, Neil said earlier on that they kill, 90% of the people that they kill are not the people they intended to kill. Um, now the question that should provoke in anybody is, well, and as Scotty was saying, you know, they don't seem to want to do anything about that. They're well, it insistent. should make them go, is our strategy working? Right, naturally, normally. Yeah. That's, but So you have to draw to a conclusion that they're either just crazy people who just are so bloody-minded and, uh, you know, stubborn that even when all of the data they get and, and the stuff they can see themselves tells them that they're not achieving what they want to achieve, uh, they keep on doing it. Now, I don't think these people are that kind of insane or crazy. So if you go with that, more reasonable explanation then what you have to assume is that everything that they're doing is what they intend to do and want to do and it's on purpose it's it's by design that is specifically their agenda their agenda is to go around the world fly drones around the world and whatever else and bomb and kill civilians in certain countries or whatever country and um, and that's the agenda. That's the goal. Now that's obviously a complete inversion of what America claims it's about, about spreading freedom and democracy to people around the world and getting rid of the bad people. The bad guys. But in fact, they're actually... It seems that the, a rational, logical explanation based on all of the evidence in the war on terror to date is that it's the opposite of that. <clears throat> that they're about basically killing ordinary civilians, you know, intimidating, effectively intim intimidating populations of countries so as to control them. And, and of course, wanting or not minding when worse bad guys come up in their place. Right. Well, actually wanting to continue to uh, generate uh, turmoil and chaos. And a, a raison d'etre for what they do. Right, to continue to do what they do. So what they... Now, we've, we've mentioned this before. Basically, they look at the world and they say, we need a threat uh, to be able to go around the world and 
uh, control different countries. We need threats in countries, threats to America, so that we can justify going into those countries or getting involved in them to um, control those countries better. So you look at a country in particular and you say there's no threat there, so you say let's create a threat. Well, okay, they can do it directly. They can refund some crazy groups that rise up, whatever, but then their goal isn't to get rid of those groups because those groups uh, are the, the rationale for being involved overseas. It's, it's the rationale for American foreign policy is some group that is a threat that espouses, that, that, that uh, says death to America. We need more groups that say death to America in different countries. Let's fund some in this country, but don't kill them, whatever you do, because we'll have to create some more. Um, so, and obviously there's a, that sounds, yeah, it's, it's a complete 180 from what they say they do, but that seems to be uh, what they are doing. Uh, forget about what they say they do and look at exactly what they do and there's also what they do and also consider that there's a very rational, in a certain sense, explanation for them doing that because it generates money. These people like money and power and control. So the money, more... Money at home, but also very important in this equation is fuel for the guys they control who go about saying death to America. They need the terror produced in those countries to fuel. they got to get support for their groups in those countries. And you get that by terrorizing the population well, yeah, into their arms. As well, to a certain extent, but it's a, that's a very difficult job to do because most people won't. Most people will have to have their own family members killed before they'll go and join a, a terrorist group, you know. Uh, I mean, you know, most people who get bombed have been bombed by the US uh, over the you know, past 70 or 80 years. Uh, most people haven't done anything about it. They've just grieved their loss and, and carried on. Most people haven't gone and joined terror groups, you know. But of course, it's it's all about, um, I think behind it is the, the money aspect and the corporate aspect, the defense contractors who make the weapons and uh, who got into bed basically with the politicians. And of course, many politicians are on the boards, the executives, uh, executive board of, of these major corporations. And they, um, they, they talk to each other and they work out policy type thing and say, okay, let's uh, listen, we want to sell some more weapons. We want more taxpayer money from you, the government, to give to us and we'll give your military weapons and then you go and use those weapons so that you can order more uh, from us and then we'll give the politicians a cut of it, you know, or they'll get a, a slice of it as, as a non-executive director of the board after you leave or whatever, you'll get a job whenever you leave politics, you know. Um, it's, uh, I mean, this is something that is very, psychologically, it's very understandable. I mean, prosaic, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's one thing. It's the thing that was said about, for example, I mean, it was kind of common knowledge, it was a kind of running, not so much joke, but a, a comment that uh, in Northern Ireland, during the conflict in Northern Ireland, the particularly the, the kind of pro-British politicians who are firebrand, you know, whipping up the, the, the people about you know, the threat from the evil Catholics in the area and the Republicans and stuff, uh, most people uh, had heard or knew the comment that, well, you know, when asked why, why do those people, why don't they just you know, lobby for peace? Why are they so uh, belligerent and why do they use so much, you know, angry rhetoric and stuff? And they said, well, his job depends on there being a conflict. 
that those people, which and, and most of them, they were all the luminaries, the leading political lights in in that uh, in, in Northern Ireland. They all uh, had built their positions in society and their jobs all depended or were based on uh, there being a conflict. If there was no conflict, those guys would just fade into obscurity and have a lot less money. So, um, you know, it's the problem is that governments and stuff put out this propaganda like freedom and democracy and appeal to noble, uh, noble ideals to justify to get public support for what they're doing. But they do that, but, you know, they do that... Uh, it, it, they do it falsely, obviously. They do it to, to, to manipulate the population. And behind it, is, it's not such... There's no, no such noble ideals. It's very cold, calculated strategy of how do I continue to ensure that I get more money and continue to get money and uh, maintain my job and maintain my position. That's the... You know, okay, there's a, there's a crossover where some of them... You know, this gets into kind of modern psychological kind of thought about how the brain works and stuff, system one and system two, you know. Some of them may have bought into their own bullshit, basically, you know, where they believe their own... In, in the US, for example, they, some people may believe, yeah, freedom and democracy and stuff, but behind it, you know, in the unconscious, they realize that... <clears throat> generals and stuff realize that it's a good good idea for them to get on TV and say Russia is a serious threat to America. Uh, why? Because a serious threat, a serious military threat, which is what they're saying to America, needs people like you, General, American General, in your position. Every time you say Russia's a threat, you probably add an extra couple of years onto your job, onto your, on, onto your, your career. You may even progress your career by, by increasing the rhetoric around Russia. They don't think about it in those terms, but that's practically what happens. So... Uh, and of course, we mentioned the money thing, and um, yeah, corporations want money. They're greedy, and they want their have insatiable greed, effectively. And they, uh, it's just a, a simple equation, you know. How do we continue to generate income? Let's we need war. Let's have war, but nobody wants to fight us. Well, can't you make them? So this kind of <clears throat> idealism that that they foist on people and the noble ideals and stuff is just nonsense. And people need to wake up from the dream and say, listen. You know, what reality do you live in? You know, stop, okay, an ideal world is, is nice, but that's not the one you have, you know? And the people running this world are not noble idealists. They're a bunch of cold-blooded cutthroats. And you can see that if you just scratch the surface. You don't even have to scratch the surface these days. It's right there in front of your face. So... Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's, all, it's, it's all kind of interesting because... You have this whole, you know, the, these different aspects of it, technological and political and blah, blah, blah. And, and then you have things like the torture policy. You know, they're, they're going to torture people to get information, which, of course, everyone knows is not useful information. It's BS. But that's what they do. And it's, you know, they're, they're going to create their own reality again. Because they want bullshit, right? Because <clears throat> that's exactly what they need to, to justify, you know, right. carrying on. It's not um, like how do we find out from this guy what the the details of the real threat to America is we say, how do we get this guy to invent a load of bullshit about a threat that doesn't exist? Well, if you torture him enough, he'd probably say freaking Barney the Purple Dinosaurs just put on a, uh, a suicide vest a suicide vest and he's heading for the White House right now, you know? Yeah. And and the other thing is that, 
you know, you read this book and you realize that it's it's not just, you know, it's not just the U.S. military. It's, you know, like I said earlier, the CIA has its own drones. They have their own kill kill chain capability, whatever, whatever the hell you want to call it. Um, and it also kind of makes you think twice about, you know, the recent NSA, well, not so recent anymore, but the NSA spying scandal and, you know, the WikiLeaks and Snowden and, you know, the effect of all that was to basically like scare the crap out of everybody. And, you know, I don't doubt that the technology exists for, you know, the NSA to know exactly what you've had for breakfast and everything and, uh, you know, and how it's digesting and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, but the question that you have to ask is, okay, yeah, they may have this capability and they may have these, you know, ridiculous sums of data stored away on every single person on the planet. But that doesn't mean it's actually being used effectively in any way, because the question is, what are they doing with that data? How are they processing it? And, you know, what are they doing with it? And I think, I think for the most part, they're probably using it in the same completely incompetent way that these drone strikes are happening. And I think the primary purpose uh, of releasing all that to the public was just to scare you and make you think that they are all powerful and they know everything. And the fact is they're all just drinking too much Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, why bother collecting all the data on people um, <clears throat> when you realize that, first of all, there is no real significant war on no terrorist threat that, that you need to, you know, collect all this data for. And secondly, there's no threat from the average uh, person. Uh, you don't need to collect data on every single person in the country or in the world. Um, it's pointless. It's useless. There's nothing to gain from it. Um, except, like Scotty was just saying, uh, that you can further your control and intimidation over people, on people, um, by simply telling them that or making it known, make them think that you have, that you have eyes and ears everywhere and you're watching them. If you can just say something, you know, I mean, if you want to intimidate your neighbor, you can convince your neighbor that you have spies everywhere watching him. You don't. But if he's susceptible enough and will believe what you say, if you have the power over over him to uh, that, that he, such that he will believe anything you say, well, then just say it. You don't necessarily have to do it, you know. Mm. And that's what they do. There have been all kinds of studies um, in the U.S. over the last 10 years or so. And the war on terror has significantly modified people's behavior. <coughs> I, I can't, I can only, I can think of one example, which is their more recent report, specifically about the Snowden leaks, where they show there was a massive drop off in people making search inquiries for terror related subjects online. Mm. Oh, Jesus, terrorism. I, I, we assume that they were inquiring as to the actual nature of how it actually works false flags, etc., stuff like that, the conspiracy stuff, it scared people off it. There was a, like a 40% drop-off in search inquiries. Mm -hmm. It's phenomenal. And they have a term for this. It's called the chilling effect. Right. Let the population know that um, <clears throat> there might be reprisals or there's some hint of reprisals in the air mm. and just watch as they spontaneously en masse modify their behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, it's pretty smart that <clears throat> the, the jihadi groups that they've created over the years and that they control, which is most of them, um, it's those groups that they have, uh, those groups that are obviously controlled and being run by somebody in the West uh, are producing, uh, have websites and producing publications like Al-Qaeda magazine, Al-Qaeda's glossy magazine, you know. Inspire. <laughs> it's Inspire. Uh, <laughs> anyway, 
that those those magazines, those publications, and the stuff that jihadis put out all kind of dovetailed with the stuff that uh, conspiracy uh, theorists were, were talking about. So, um, to the point where Inspire, the Al Qaeda magazine, put out an editorial saying. Uh, anyone saying that we're a part of a conspiracy with the U.S. government, uh, we hereby issue fatwa on yeah. their heads. Right. How dare you? Stop saying that. Uh, uh, what I was getting from what you were saying about this book, Scotty, was um, I was getting an impression of the serious chinks in the armor yeah. of what what in people's minds is this global leviathan, this behemoth, this runaway monster. And it could be, but for different reasons than the assumption that it has total technological superiority over everyone. Um, the edge it seems to have is the crazy edge. Yeah. And they did explicitly discuss this among themselves decades ago. Um, and the Israelis are famous for it too. This, um, they were concerned with putting, giving, putting the impression out there that they could go mad dog on everyone at any moment, um, that they could launch nukes, open up your country to trade with our corporations, or we'll nuke you. It was never maybe said explicitly, but countries maybe capitulated and submitted rather easily, not because they were like actually scared of what technologically the U.S. would do to them, but they were kind of submitting to this psychological edge and that seems to be all the US has got really it's it, it seems to the impression I'm getting is, is bluff and not mm. yeah actual yeah that's that's I would say that's that was the main thing that kind of shocked me so much is it because I mean you know I know a fair bit about you know technical stuff and like I realized that I had sort of believed all this stuff for so long and and you I mean you read this book and like just I mean, I couldn't stop reading it because the more I read, the more like my jaw dropped to the floor and I went like, oh my God, this, it's all just crazy making. And it's, it's a bunch of people believing their own crazy making and that of others. And it just balloons into this enormous mess. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't matter how good the technology is. If you've got a bunch of crazy, emotional, you know, ponderized humans, Mm-hmm. Driving it around, you know. We've got a call here. Let me uh, go and see who, who we've got. Uh, who, who have we got in the air there? Hey, this is Stephen in Orlando. Hey, Stephen. Yes. Um, to, to jump in in this uh, situation with the uh, collecting the intelligence, um, I'm actually a perfect example of how the effectiveness of um, the information that's come out to the public is um, – if they have you, uh, the, the purpose of their huge storage facility, it, it's every text, every history of every conversation, text message, Internet search, information, um, what kind of information you're looking at. They have the whole history there. So if you're causing problem for any huge, you know, big corporate power or whatever, any po po political machine, if you're causing problems um, or if, you're, you, if you threaten to develop um, – popular democratic economics or something like that that's going to hurt profits and, and actually uh, bring more intelligence in move or, or movements, right? That's what it's for. So um, when I became a whistleblower, all this stuff started. This was before Snowden, and um, 
I was punished for it in many ways, you know, hurting me economically and so on. But they just they totally shut me down. And uh, what it does is, is it the knowledge of what they have, what they can do and what they suppress. Like I uncovered an incredibly huge ecological crime where a county was helping fill in wetlands. I mean, just totally it's totally violating every ecological rule and, and how they're, they were allowed to do that, get away with it. And how that be submerged across the board from the Sierra Club, you just totally squashed what the the information that I had that was pertinent and important, and it kind of shut me up by having me become demoralized just slowly. You're economically punished, you know, and that hobbles you. So like the whole system congeals to like let the corrupt status quo just continue from day to day. And the the thing that's remarkable, I'm gonna I want y'all. Y'all's take on what I'm going to have to say here, my, this insight. The thing that's just really remarkable is that we have all of this Internet. and all, we It's like we can't get a coherent platform that's economic of democratic self-betterment through um, open flow of information, um, exchange of um, products, you know, information and all that. The people should be taking taking control of their lives through economic um, cooperation and communitarianism for self-help and family help, community help. I mean, it's just so simple that that option's there, but it's like there's an enforced apathy in the patterns of how we think and what we're exposed to that just like keeps us immobilized and paralyzed from actually developing something that seems so simple and it could have such incredible reverberation into the future that it's, but it's just tamped down through just like this generalized apathy that seems to be enforced, you know, almost passively and ignorantly through the people that have access to um, platforms through which cultures conveyed. So anyway, I want, I want your response on what I just said there. Uh, yeah, um, people, the general idea that people are kind of kept down in some way seems to be really um really true and really apparent uh, the mechanisms by which that happens are uh, probably varied and you know from everything from just being bombarded with false information uh, confusing information to the point where people just switch off because it's too confusing to people's diets uh, where they're basically eating all sorts of crap food that keeps them unable to think um, and also economically in, in terms of um, a large percentage of the population struggling just to uh, just to keep a job and and keep kind of keep the crap food on the table basically working most of their lives you know um all of those things kind of tend to conspire to to make a population of any country or of the entire world uh one that just doesn't think doesn't act doesn't react and has kind of uh it's just turned away and is is you know is too stressed and too too worked too worked overworked to, to do anything about it you know and you know what? I, I fit that just completely right because before I had like a couple of corporate accounts that were kind of really good backbone of my company and my revenues, right? After I announced it, became a, I became a whistleblower when I went public and I was trying to shine the light on this huge ecological crime that I had uncovered that was just egregious, incredible. I thought it was going to get all this media. Man, man mm. it was uh, the reason I did that, man is that um, I kind of suspected that, you know, I could take a hit. This could all be submerged. And um, I would hope I hope the story would blow up and we get publicity to how, like, 
ecological like destruction happens, you know, continues apace, even though we have these organizations like Syrah. Man, I got no help. So um, it destroyed me so bad that in another relationship I got into. But, man, it's just it's so incredible. Um, I'm, I'm trying to uh, in the near future develop um, video presentation um, concerning that that particular case. Um, of that particular swamp on Alligator Lake. And um, it's a very interesting story mm. because right now the people that when I was on that location, I was driven off and there's people there that did it, destroyed my trailer, stole my mail. They're now internet pop culture stars with Vice News. Oh, yeah? Yeah, they're called Mike Busey. If you check out Mike Busey. Oh, yeah? Busey. yeah, and they have like this – culture of like guns and pornography and they live in the house the house that they live in they call it the sausage castle right mm. and they have they have ties with uh like jackass mm. uh, comedians you know you know pop culture comedians so everything's a big joke you know but this guy just totally destroyed my work there stole my mail to drive me out because he needed the area that needed to be restored, that was destroyed. He needed it for parking for his parties that were illegal. And um, the state failed me. The media failed me. So anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be doing presentation through some uh, YouTube video mm. presentation about the entire story. Right now, I'm trying to get the house, the Sausage Castle, this one house that's there. It was built illegally, partially over wetland. And... Um, I discovered this. We uncovered this stuff in like 2010, but they've done these guys became pop culture icons. This Mike Busey and he, he celebrates pornography. Um, it, it's incredible. They, they run through these areas that have been destroyed through with mud trucks and all of that. And they just totally shut me down. So now I'm trying to bring this to light through some YouTube videos and trying to get publicity. Well, and, um, Steve, anyway, you, you send you can send us on uh, anything when you do some videos. Send them on to us, and we'll. I will. I will because I really respect you, what what y'all are doing, and you're really discussing issues of like our culture, our mm. mindset. You really discuss things and and dig deep. Mm. And um, the best thing that I get out of it is I learn more about myself. Like these reflections of, you know, my attitudes. You know, since I was driven off of there and. The whole thing, I went into depression and there's this kind of apathy, but like the reflecting on it, there's no, it's just such a shame. There's no networks of real support for somebody who's unco under, un uncovering ecological crimes. There's no real community of grassroots people that do support. And that's why we're in such a miserable state as far as the continued degradation and pollution of our environment and, and our species extinction and, mm -hmm. and eco you know, wetland destruction, our swamps are disappearing. It's just, it's just a crime, but we, we let it happen like in slow motion. And it's like, we can't, you know, it's the saddest thing when we can't regroup and do something better. And because if we can't, we're all extinct in the long run, you know? Yeah. So, anyway, Hey, nice talking to y'all. Look forward to listening to the rest of y'all show. All bye right, bye. Stephen. Thanks. Take care, Stephen. Bye. Take care. All right, um, I think maybe it's time for us, unless we've got something else, uh, time to go to our police state roundup with Brent, who is on the line. Can I say your name? 
Yeah, you can say my name. All right. <laughs> say my name. <laughs> it's already said. <laughs> uh, it's already said. That the horse is bolted. So, um, yeah, Brent, what have you got for us uh, in terms of the jackbooted thugs that are always near oh. the police? Oh, sorry. Um, before, well, before, before we do that, gotta do the intro. Where's your warrant? Where's your warrant? Show me the warrant. Where's your warrant? We don't need a warrant. Yes. They just said they did not have a warrant. Get out of my house unless you have a warrant right now. If you keep smiling at me, like this is some kind of funny thing. Okay, I okay. something funny about that. Okay, then stop smiling. Red twice! I need to hit! Do it! Do it now! <laughs> That's your cue. That uh, makes me laugh every time I hear it. <laughs> um, so, first story I have here is a uh, video that went viral about 11 days ago. Um, a school resource officer, which is these are these police officers that they, you know, keep on retainer in schools across the nation. Um, it's caught in a video um, putting a, a kid who's about half his size in a, a chokehold. And the story here was that um, the student, Brian Burney, was trying to use a bathroom. And the bathroom um, was uh, locked on his floor. So he had to go to another floor to use the bathroom. Um, and then the, that's when he confronted this officer, uh, Jeffrey uh, Macchiocha. And, you know, they, they had an argument over the fact that he didn't have a hall pass. And in a moment of frustration, the student threw an orange uh, either at the wall or, you know, the officer's claiming he threw the orange at him. Um, and the cop then retaliated by punching him in the face twice, slamming him down on the ground and putting him in a chokehold. Um, soon after, students gathered around and um, were yelling at the officer to get off him. Uh, there was one student who had recorded the whole thing start to finish, but this video was deleted. The uh, individual who was, taken, who was taking the footage said that he would be at risk of arrest, and the phone was taken from him by a teacher who deleted the footage herself. Uh, somebody else caught a brief 13-second clip, you know, after he had ended up on the ground, and, and that video is still available. But now um, the student union... Is, uh, has issued a statement, and they're accusing this officer of police brutality. No, um, no, no doubt. Assault with a deadly orange, really. Yeah, and again, like if you if you look at the video or you you know read the accounts, this officer is clearly twice the size of this kid. There was no reason for this to become a physical interaction, um, and it's just another instance of these these cops in schools terrorizing children and. I assume the reason the video was, you know, forcibly deleted was because they were afraid of having another, you know, another viral video like that girl in um, South Carolina who got slammed on the ground because she wouldn't, you know, get out of her desk. So yeah. um, it's just just another one of these. Really need to get these cops out of schools, but nobody seems to want to move on that. Uh, there's another article here. Uh, the title is "After They Convicted Her of Assault <clears throat> on Police Two Years Later." Video shows the cops attacked her. Uh, on December 19th, 2014, 32-year-old Jennifer Merrow was in a car accident. She failed a sobriety test, and she was brought to jail, um, where she was attacked by police and subsequently charged and convicted for it. Um, basically, these officers, you know, assaulted her because she, uh, you know, while they were restraining her and dragging her across the floor, you know, her her leg you know, shot out, you know, to prevent her from falling. And because it grazed, you know, some, one of these officers, they took that as, you know, as an attack on them. 
and they proceeded to beat the crap out of this woman. Um, she was charged, she was convicted, and it wasn't until two years later that uh, video became available that showed that you know she really didn't attack them. And so now um, there's this whole whole break in the case, and the, uh, the county sheriff's office claimed that, oh, we have more video that shows that she actually did attack us, but we aren't releasing it yet. So it's uh, and this this individual case has been was held up by um, to illustrate the dangers the police face on the job. So it's 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 pretty ironic that you know it's a whole slew of BS, and you know they're using this incident to show that oh you know cops are really facing these dangerous drunk crazy people all the time, and you know here it comes out that you know they attacked her. <laughs> crazy. Um, there's another uh, another story. Uh, Dashcam cops. Uh, Dashcam video shows cops smiling as they brutally beat Taser and put a canine on a compliant man for dancing. Uh, this guy from uh, Washington State was just granted a hundred thousand dollar settlement to settle a civil rights lawsuit after police were seen repeatedly punching, uh, tasering, and allowing their canine to maul him while he was apparently unconscious. Uh, victim Linson Tara was found dancing in a freight yard. His his great crime was was dancing, you know, and I guess on private property where he he should not have been. And uh, you, if you watch the video, you see, you know, when the police arrive, he's he's cheerful. He's got a smile on his face. He's got one hand on his hip, the other one kind of just, you know, like, oh hi, what's up? Um, the cops grab him, and uh, he's like, you know, what's why are you like, what's the big deal? Why are you attacking me? He kind of tries to shrug them off and. For that, you know, huge disrespect of their authority, they slam his face into the uh, into the the front of the car, the cop car. Um, put his arm in kind of like one of these, you know, gonna break your arm holds. Um, guy pulls out his taser and they tase him. And after that, he kind of like collapses. Like you can see it in the video. He he's not he's not really conscious anymore. He actually falls off the car. Um, and the cops. Then you see this canine come out <laughs> and start to bite him. And the guy says, you know, oh, put your hand behind your back. Put your hand. I'll pull the, I'll pull the dog off. Why don't you put your hand behind your back? And it's just like you're getting mauled by a dog. You're probably semi-conscious. And you're trying to issue orders to some guy in that state. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's, it's unreal. Unreal. Mm-hmm. These guys, uh, unfortunately, one guy has my first name. Officers Brent Frank and Mike Boner. Mm-hmm. Uh, are captured on Dashcam video, apparently smiling as they proceed to unleash their fury and their canine on Tara, who's entirely compliant slash unconscious. Wow. Uh, and let's see, there's another story. Uh, Chicago police assault and threaten to tase a man with a baby in his arms. Federal lawsuit claims Chicago police officer threatened to use a taser on a man who was holding a baby boy in his arms and warned him that the one-year-old would feel the electricity. A uh, lawsuit filed last Tuesday claimed the entire incident was caught by a security camera, and it names the city and several police officers as defendants. Um, let's see. He was approached by officers in an alleyway near his garage, who then demanded that he put his son down on the ground. This is a, a infant, and they wanted to put him on you know, an alleyway floor. Um, let's see. He told the officers that the mother of his son would come and take the child, um, but then at that point, the officers you know, decided to get violent with him. Uh, one of them tried to pry the boy out of the father's arms. The infant then screamed, quote, in a way that Mr. Corrales and his mother had never heard before. The officers then slammed him onto the hood of the police cruiser while he held the infant son 
pinning the child underneath him, the lawsuit says. Um, and, you know, the supposed allegations that this guy was confronted about was a neighbor's complaint that he had damaged a fence on the property line and that he was, quote, threatening the neighbor. So this is some guy that called in, basically, you know, police, oh, this guy's damaging my fence, you know, and he's threatening me. And, um, you know, even if that, even if it's true, which it probably isn't, you know, it's basically a misdemeanor charge. Mm. Um, let's see. I got another one here. To bust people for buying crack, cops are now manufacturing and selling crack cocaine. Uh, this is in <laughs> Albuquerque, New Mexico. Police department details a plan of how they plan to go about catching low-level drug users by becoming crack cocaine manufacturers. Uh, quote, powdered cocaine may be taken into APD's criminalistics unit and made into crack cocaine, reads the affidavit and motion to release evidence dated February 25th, 2016, signed by a judge. Um, in addition to police manufactured crack, the APD is also permitted to use methamphetamine, cocaine, and heroin from its catalog evidence stores in order to become drug dealers so that they can catch people who use these illegal substances. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the document continues. Once the transaction is completed, the individual purchasing the drugs will be arrested and charged with felony possession of a controlled substance. The detectives will then attempt to immediately retrieve the drugs sold. And, and go home and all get high. This is what the war on drug has become. You know, yeah, they're, yeah. It, they're clearly not even interested in you know, high-level people that are importing or you know, massive shipments of drugs. We're just going to take what we have. We're going to go out on the street undercover. We're going to sell it to people who, you know, are obviously they probably have, you know, addiction problems or, yeah. you know, financial so distress, can't afford lawyers. Yeah, instead of getting, you know, treatment to people who obviously need it, they're going to just, you know, yeah. bust it to make their quotas. It sounds a lot like the, uh, the tactics the FBI, you know, in their uh, terror plots. Uh, where they basically, you know, get all the paraphernalia together for a terror attack, you know, a fake bomb. You know, boots, guns, and maps of uh, maps of the continental USA to wage a full ground war, and then find some uh, you know deluded uh, down and out Muslim kid or something. Say, you want to join Al Qaeda, and you want to plant this bomb, and then give it to him, and then say, okay, now you're busted. You have our bomb. <laughs> give it back. Yeah, they pat themselves on their back, and there's a huge media circus about how much good they're doing. Well, the APD, um, there were pretty big protests there in Albuquerque for like a couple of years. Right. And I came to a head with people storming um, that's the city council. That's because there was one incident there a couple of years ago that uh, they were shooting, cops. They were like, shooting jump, people. Well, they, there was one incident where they jumped up on top of a car and uh, well, one one cop at the end, they, there was about seven or eight cops and they all fired like probably more than 100 bullets into a car. And then at the end, one you know, bravado Rambo cop ran over and jumped up on the on the, on the hood and shot, you know, seven or eight times straight into the windscreen. And the guy was just, I think it was just because he was, uh, it was a, a slow-speed car chase or something, and he had no gun, he had no gun, he had nothing, they just, it was just, <laughs> it was, uh, whatever. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, there's, a, there's quite a few, if I look back, I have a little database that I'm keeping here, and there's quite a few incidents in Albuquerque. It's it's uh, yeah. one of those places where you see it pop up again and again. Yeah, you don't want to go um, there. There's another article here from Portsmouth, Virginia. Mentally ill man jailed for stealing $5 worth of food, tortured and starved to death in prison, uh, claims this lawsuit. 
24-year-old Jamichael Mitchell was arrested in Portsmouth, Virginia, April 2015, for stealing a bottle of soda, a candy bar, and a snack cake worth $5.05. After he was taken into jail, he was ruled unfit to stand trial. Apparently, he suffered from bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and was described in school record as mildly mentally retarded. He nevertheless, nevertheless remained in jail for four months instead of being transferred for the hosp- to a hospital. Um, they found him in a cell uh, after having lost 40 to 50 pounds. This guy was uh, 6'3", 180-something when he went into jail, and his body was uh, around 140 pounds. It was so He had lost so much weight and had aged so rapidly that his family could not recognize his corpse. Um, the lawsuit uh, says that he was very psychotic and delusional during his uh, medical screening at the jail. They, he was supposed to be transferred to a, um, a hospital, and um, that just, ne- it just never happened. Uh, he was supposed to be moved, never did, uh, and was left in jail until August 19th. Um, the official you know, reason why he was never transferred is that there were no hospital invest- beds available. But the state inspector general showed that uh, the time between his transfer order was issued and the time that he died, which was about three months, there was only one day when all the beds were full. So they're lying. Um, And, yeah, he was three. Um, There's also a few allegations coming from people that were also held in the jail at the same time, saying that he was locked alone uh, in a two-man cell, rarely ever allowed to leave. Um, the cell was air conditioned to the point where it was cold. Um, he was denied a mattress, sheet, blankets, um, you know, and he didn't have shoes. So he was, you know, suffering from chronic cold conditions, um, and said that they fed him once a day, if that, which would explain why his, you know, his drastic weight loss, weight loss was happening. Um, and this just, you know, from Sandra Bland to this guy, there's a number of these stories of people in police custody, that are killed or tortured. Um, I have another article here. This is from 2012 about a guy, Darren Rainey, who was uh, being held in a, a hospital in Miami who um, was killed while in custody. He was cooked to death inside of a, a shower. Um, I guess the, the story here is that this man, you know, he's, he's got severe mental problems, uh, was being held in this hospital, and, you know, he had pooped himself, basically. And the way that the guards thought that they were going to, you know, retaliate for that severe infraction was that they were going to throw him into this shower, which has a, a locking mechanism and external controls, and they just cranked the heat all the way up. Um, then when uh, when his brother, you know, when they, they tried to contact his brother to let him know that, you know, he had passed away, they said that he collapsed in the shower and blamed some sort of, you know, heart attack, you know, and... They, uh, they also encouraged his younger brother to cremate the corpse. <laughs> so it was clear that they knew that they'd done something wrong, and they were basically trying to cover up the, uh, the evidence. Mm. Um, yeah, the, uh, the window to exhume his body and perform an independent autopsy was closed once his corpse was cremated. And basically, uh, you know, this guy was burned over 90% of his body. His skin was hot, warm to the touch, comes off when touched, noted a medical report. Um, in, in this guy's federal lawsuit and it's just, you know, it's really horrific abuse. And these guys were never charged. They were never, you know, reprimanded, you know, according to officialdom, 
everything they did was within protocol. And you see that kind of justification over and over and over again. It's just really disturbing. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Did you, did you catch the one Brent um, published yesterday, a video from Georgia? Um, no, I don't think so. In November 2015 incident, uh, a guy is chased by cops. I'm not sure what the original infraction was. It was something minor anyway. He's in a car with a wife and daughter, and uh, he's eventually stopped, pulled over, and they proceed, oh, I did see this one. they proceed to taser him to death in his own car. Um, yeah, so the story with this guy was right. that his family was coming back from a wedding in Jamaica where he had uh, admittedly done some, uh, some spice. And spice is this synthetic marijuana that's available on the market. It's technically legal, but I'm going to encourage everybody to stay very, very far away from it because what, what I've read about it and the, the videos I've seen people on it, it's a very dangerous substance, probably more dangerous than actual illegal marijuana. So if you see spice, you, people, you hear people doing it, you know, stay far away. It's very dangerous. This guy um, was basically was having psychotic breaks while they were still on vacation in Jamaica. Um, they flew back. Uh, they were eventually they were trying to fly back to Florida. They had a stopover in Atlanta. And his family, he was with his mother, his fiance, um, and his father. And they were concerned about this guy, you know, being a little iffy on the second leg of their journey. So instead of getting on the second plane, they rent a car and decide to drive home. Um, about halfway on the trip back, he um, starts to have, you know, real paranoid delusions. He's trying to get out of the car. Um, you know, he's a 32-year-old guy, kind of a big dude. Um, they don't know what to do, so they pull over and they call 911 trying to get some medical assistance. Uh, <clears throat> the medical assistance they get is a bunch of police who show up, taser him several times, handcuff him. Um, even when the EMTs show up, they kind of help pile on top of him in order to restrain this guy because he's, he's, uh, he's erratic. You know, I think one time he, he tries to grab – he's handcuffed, but somehow he manages to grab one of the guy's tasers, um, and that really sets off the police – so they, they continually, they tasered him about 15 times, I think. There's uh, also body camera footage of this interaction available. Um, and basically, you know, once they, once they have him kind of like, he even says at one point, I'm dead, I'm dead, I give up. And shortly thereafter, he actually died. Um, they had, had him compressed in the backseat of this car. Um, they, you know, they clearly could not contribute, you know, three, four guys could, you know, trained officers, medical people could not keep this dude under control. And, um, you know, they, they tasered him a bunch. They punched the crap out of him. They put, putting, you know, weight on his chest and, you know, he was, he lost, he, he basically passed unconscious and died. Um, and yeah, they, they weren't sure, you know, what really caused it. The only thing that, that, you know, the family could think about was that, you know, he had done this, this spice a few days ago, which is very odd. You know, you, you, you do, you know, you do a drug, usually the most stuff is out of your system in a couple of, you know, a couple of days. Hmm. Um, some stuff is more fat soluble and it hangs around longer. I don't know what spice is. I don't know what's in it. Um, but oh. clearly it has the potential to cause these sort of severe psychotic episodes. But let's be clear here. It wasn't the spice that killed him. I've watched the video. It's 30 minutes. It's from a body cam of one of the police officers there. Within five minutes, they have him totally prone. He's handcuffed. He's not going anywhere. He's in the back seat 
on his knees, head down. And they're all, the three of them, on top with their knees digging into him. They have their tasers on him permanently, permanently keeping them going. Fire, fire. One of them on the spine. Go, go. Non-stop for five minutes, yelling at him. Stop resisting. Stop resisting. I don't know what sense of resisting they got from, because at this point he looks dead to me. And they're just screaming at him over and over and over again. He wasn't killed by Spice. <laughs> he was killed by oh, the yeah. cops. Uh, let's just be clear about that. Totally, totally. It's uh, it's just crazy. I mean, and these are supposed to be people who are, are, you know, ostensibly they're trained in how to restrain and deal with combative people. You know, supposedly they're trained to deal with people that are, you know, mentally disturbed. Um, but it just, we, again and again, we see these cases where, you know, people may be having, a, you know, a rough spot. Either they're depressed or, you know, they're having an episode and the cops show up and summarily execute them because, you know, they don't really know what to do. And mm-hmm. they, they use these quote-unquote non-lethal weapons, you know, repeatedly, you know, 15-plus times, you know, different tasers, you know, they're all firing, they're all punching, they're all, you know, restraining and putting pressure on your on this dude's chest. It's just insane. Like, I, I mean, where, where do you draw the line? Where do you, you know, finally say, okay, you know, this, this case is a little this – is, this is extreme, like – we need to step back and look at the training again. We need to, you know, address how how to handle people that are, you know, suffering from mental illness or, you know, suffering a psychotic episode. You know, it's just it just goes to show you that the people in charge, people making these training protocols, the people, you know, deciding whether or not to prosecute officers uh, for wrongdoing, they don't care. They don't, they, you know, they, they don't, you know, all this, this could be just summed up as, oh, you know, if, if he was resisting, then, you know, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. happens, happens. And it's the individual's fault. Mm-hmm. It's just as if resisting arrest now carries a death penalty in the United right. States of America. Pretty much. You know, some me, people would call that cruel and unusual. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Tell me, Brent, do you, uh, is this, uh, I was looking at the, I know you've been looking at the cops, uh, Cop brutality for a while. You've written about it and stuff in the past. Would it uh, at this stage would it make you think twice about calling the cops, depending on a, oh, on a situation? Oh, of course, hmm? absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> I, I think it would have to be some sort of pretty extreme situation before I would even consider it. Mm. Um, they're they're dangerous. The nice thing I live in New York City, and kind of the nice thing here is that even if you do call the police, they don't show up for like two hours if right. they show up at all. <laughs> so. <laughs> The more that you have to worry about here is that there's something crazy happening on the street. Like we just had a, you know, a crazy person um, down on 8th Avenue, kind of right around the corner from where I live. And um, they shot him up and uh, I think he had a gun and they, they killed him. So you have to you have to worry about friendly fire, though. The police yeah. near city is very crowded. The NYPD is more than willing to pull out their weapons and discharge them if they, quote unquote, feel that their life is in danger. Mm-hmm. But they don't really, you know. They don't really care if they happen to accidentally hit some some bystanders, which is likely a very crowded space. Right. It's well, just it's insane. It is. And it's getting worse, you know. How far is it going to go is the question, you know. Well, I, I think we're, I mean, we're getting to a point now where these stories are coming hot and heavy. You have anywhere between, you know, two to three really, really intense ones, like almost every day I mm. see pop up on my feed. Mm. Um. I think eventually it'll get to the point where you know, the people What's will that noise? have enough. Uh, it's my window. I'm sorry. No, that's the cops I hear. 
Uh, it's probably an ambulance. I live right next to a hospital. <laughs> no, it's the cops are coming to get you. Uh, yeah, let's not get paranoid. Not no, yet. Don't get paranoid. Got to keep some humor. All right. The only way you can survive. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Brian, thanks a million for, for that round. It was pretty, pretty harrowing to listen to it, but uh, it's uh, necessary information. I mean, we all need to know what's going on and the way things are are heading, you know, so we can have an idea of like even that just that idea of uh, thinking twice about calling the cops. I mean, depending on where you are and what the situation is, it's could be a matter of life and death for some people someday, you know. Um, yeah, I, I feel really bad for the people that aren't getting this information. They're living mm. in La La Land that just mm. think the police are there to help. I see their comments all the time. You know, mm. they they see you know, one or two stories here and there. They don't see the overall picture, the big pattern. Um, and it's 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 there. It's available. You know, I mean, we talk about mm. it here, but you want to deny it, you'll, you'll reap the consequences sooner or later. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, hopefully we'll hear from you again next week, yeah? Yep, totally. Alrighty. Well, thanks a million and uh, have a good evening. Stay safe. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Brent. That's the thanks, Brent. State Roundup. Harrison, you still there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what have you got for us? No, Harrison doesn't have anything, do you? Well, just one thing. Just uh-huh. while Brent was telling his, his stories about the cops, um, it reminded me of a recent clip from John Oliver's show that he did on 911. And just to add like another layer to the insanity of the, the whole system in the States is that the 911 system, when you dial 911, apparently it's totally outdated and the technology, they're, the technology they're using is so primitive that Domino's Pizza has a better system for finding out where you are, where you're calling from, than the actual 911 services do. <laughs> so when you, when you call 911, they're supposed to be able to you know, track your call so that they can find where you're calling from and send someone out to to ostensibly help you. And, of course, this was easier 20, 30 years ago when everyone had landlines, so they could just automatically see where your call was being routed from. But now, because of most people who use cell phones, they can't, they can't, the closest they can do often is identify the region you're in closest to, you know, the cell tower that has, has mm-hmm. taken your call. So you call them, and they they had some clips of tests that they do, and so this news uh, reporter for a local you know TV news station had called nine one one, and he was calling from inside the nine one one call center. So he called nine one one. He's like, "Okay, I'm, I'm the I'm I'm this journalist. I'm calling. Where where am I where am I calling from?" And so they said, "Oh, well, you're calling from this street. This is what we're getting," and it's like nowhere near where he's actually calling from, he's right next to the person taking the call. So they, they, can't even, they can't even identify where you're coming from. And like I said, Domino's Pizza has a better app than the 911. And there's just, it's, the, the whole system is totally insane. The, the money that gets from your taxes that goes towards um, the 911 program, most of that money is actually diverted in the, in the budget to other um, you know, other areas, they take that money and they just spend it on something else. So like there's not even crack the money. Cocaine. Well, yeah, like <laughs> making crack cocaine. So it's just the whole system is, is totally messed up. And even so, Don't even worry, if you call 911. I've heard they're going to upgrade yeah. it. They're going to take home all those useless predator drones, right? And have them fly <laughs> yeah. all over U.S. cities. 
Well, that's what they should do, actually. You just have drones, you know, smart, like maybe not like uh, quadcopters or something, but, you know, military quadcopters with little small Hellfire missiles on them. And, yeah. you know, the cop can just be looking at it. Hellfire from a, tasers. Yeah, from a remote location. He can look and see the two people arguing and, and say, hmm, I'm going to shoot that one. <laughs> and then just shoot. Yeah, shoot. they can use this. Huh? They can use the cell phone technology that Scotty was talking about, and then they, you know, they find out who's calling from where, and that then you become a target. So, yeah, I mean, that that's an easy way to solve the problem because then no one, because all the people that call nine one one, if you just take them out, then you won't get any any more nine one one calls, right? And there won't be a problem, right? Yeah. So just well, uh, yeah. just kill well, them all. Yeah. Yeah, but isn't isn't that just beautiful? I mean, they have they have a they have a system. Okay, so the system as we just described doesn't really work, but they have a system for tracking everybody's cell phone in, say, Iraq and everything. And, you know, the technology exists. It's not, like, ridiculously expensive. Yeah. But for a 911 emergency call, they've got, like, 30-year-old mm. crap. Why are we but not surprised? Actually, it would pro- people would be probably be well advised to actually just, instead of calling 911, call Domino's Pizza. You know, <laughs> let them know. Yeah, let get Domino's Pizza to, to like bring an ambulance or something. No, just to bring pizza. No, just to bring a pizza. I mean, that'll, let, that'll make everybody feel happier, right? I mean, you're having an argument with your neighbor or something. Just call Domino's and share a pizza with a guy, and Problem everyone's solved. cool. Keep the cops out of it, you know. Don't find anything. You know? um, no, but then again, if you're ordering a pizza, you'll be like uh, like Salah Abdeslam in uh, in Belgium. Because he, you know, he was in that house, that safe house, and they mm. ordered a bunch of pizzas, and that's what got him caught. Ah, ah, that's when they said so, to blow. That was suspicious behavior. That's, Too many pieces. Yeah. That's when they decided to blow yeah. up the blow up the apartment. <clears throat> exploding pizzas. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. Talking about exploding things, there's lots of uh, volcanoes. If anybody hasn't noticed, going off all around the world. Etna has been rumbling. There's one in um, Iceland. There's one in. Uh, two in two, Indonesia. Two in Indonesia. I think they're talking about one South America as well, no? Nicaragua. Nicaragua. And there's plenty of earthquakes going off all over the place, too, in uh, Eastern Europe just today. Two uh, major ones in Ecuador within 24 hours. Yeah. So earthquakes, volcanoes, lions and tigers and bears. A spate of massive fireballs, including one over the U.S. Northeast. Right. Yeah. It's definitely pushing it, you know. To a kind of a, well, we don't know, but it's kind of peaking, perhaps. It's a spike. We'll see what happens. I'll see where it goes, but uh, yeah, the earth is PO'd at all of this nonsense going on. All of the reality creators and BS artists. But there you have it. Uh, that's what we have to deal with. Um, hopefully for not too much longer. Something will happen. Jeebus will come back and sort everything out. Um... Until then, uh, thanks for listening, and thanks to Brent again for our roundup. Thanks to Stephen for calling in, and to our chatters, and thanks to Scotty for our extra special book club uh, session uh, and his diligent work in finding out about drones and how evil they are and all that. Uh, I, I might be back later if I read my second book ever. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's be announced. <laughs> I, I haven't found one yet, though, so. <laughs> Okay. And thanks, Harrison, for being here too. Thanks, guys. All right. So we'll be back next week in some form or other to be announced. Until then, thanks for listening. Have a good evening.
Take care. See you soon. Bye. See you. Bye-bye.